the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be featuring Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health to give us another, yet another update on COVID. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Absolutely, Nick. Thank you for having me. It's been a long year and four months, but uh, we finally made it. We're now looking uh, at the 4th of July weekend, 2021, and uh, we've been talking COVID every month. How are we looking now as we're looking toward toward the uh, 4th of July weekend? Well, certainly things are improving in terms of, you know, we're getting more people vaccinated. Uh, Our case counts are going down. Um, so we're, we're in decent shape. Uh, I think what's interesting is from a health department perspective, uh, we're seeing a little bit of stagnation in terms of people becoming vaccinated. Uh, as we've talked about several times, Nick, in the, in the winter, late winter and early spring, we really, you know, we distributed, uh, you know, tens of thousands of, of doses of vaccine. And now uh, we're sort of at a point where things are at a bit of a standstill. Uh, we're, we're, we're seeing far fewer numbers in uh, our standing clinics. As you know, the mass vaccination clinics have been, have been shut down by and large. Uh, but the encouraging part is that there is great availability of vaccine uh, at places like pharmacies, right? So as we go to our local outlets, uh, you know, grocery stores, drug stores, whatever, uh, you know, people are able to walk in and get the vaccine. So what the, uh, the flexibility that we did not have early on, uh, we certainly have it now. So we really encourage anybody who's still, you know, thinking about uh, access possibly as an issue in getting the vaccine uh, in terms of, you know, you may work a lot or you may care for other people and you only have small windows of time. Uh, I, I think what, what would be helpful now is, um, you know, to probably – look at those places that are open, those retail outlets, and, and try to take advantage of getting a vaccine at those locations now. You know, we, we talk about uh, the continued resistance for some people to get the vaccination. Uh, are, are there rumors or are there beliefs out there that the vaccine is dangerous? Well, I, I think depending on, um, you know, what, uh, what group of people we're talking about, the issues can be different. Uh, I think we're, what we've seen are different reasons for hesitancy across different ethnicities or different cultures. Uh, sometimes what we see is resistance that comes from a political point of view or from a lot of political rhetoric. Um, you know, we see other, other groups of people who have just an inherent mistrust of the medical system. Uh, they could have problems with access right? Not having ready access to services. Uh, we also see language as a barrier. Uh, for people who, um, you know, English is not their native language. They, they're they grouped demographically as being called English as a second language population. Um, oftentimes, you know, it can be difficult to find a doctor 
uh, you know, that can communicate with you in your native language and also to be able to take the time to build up that trust. And then also, you know, there are still, um, you know, some people who are, are, we get calls once in a while who people say, well, I can't afford the vaccine. And, you know, I, I think right now, um, you know, you can go anywhere and get it at no cost. I think what people run into is once in a while, they'll go to a, a health service provider who may add an administrative fee. Uh, and this is generally from a private provider. So if you go to those places I referred to just a minute ago, you know, the pharmacy, the drugstore, whatever, uh, us as the Board of Health, you know, you, you will not incur any costs for vaccine. But, you know, as, as, I, as I explained this, Nick, you can see the reasons for hesitancy are, are multiple. And so trying to get, you know, sufficient information to people is one thing, but then getting them to change long-held beliefs is another. How, how does the COVID vaccine percentages of uh, inoculation compare with what we see in the annual flu vaccinations where people uh, freely go out and get vaccinated for the annual flu? Uh, are we seeing the percentages in the flu vaccinations lower or higher than what we're doing in COVID? Well, I'd say now, um, given that <clears throat> the vaccine has generally been available in some form or another, I would not say widely available, but in some form or another since January, and probably more widely available since about April, um, the numbers are starting to line up. But I, you know, not being a data analyst, my my inkling would be to give it a little more time to see how the numbers compare. But just looking just at the numbers that we have right now in Cuyahoga County. Uh, the latest numbers show that we're right about 47% of our population has completed both doses or the single dose of Johnson & Johnson of vaccine uh, in terms of COVID. Generally, in a flu season, uh, the CDC tells us that 40 to 60% of the country will get a flu vaccine, and it's usually more on the lower end, so it's right of, you know, around 50% typically. So, you know, we're in that ballpark right now. Um, but I think the one thing we want to be careful about is, uh, as we may talk about as time goes on, is, you know, now that fewer people are wearing masks because they're vaccinated, um, you know, we are in the honor system, right? So whether people are vaccinated or not, which we're kind of trusting each other that if you're not, you'd wear a mask. And if, if you are, you know, you may not need one. But as we go into flu season, you know, the transmission of flu and people getting closer together and maybe social distancing not being so great as it was and people possibly coming into closer contact and shaking hands and potentially coughing and these things, you know, we're, we're kind of <clears throat> holding our breath a little bit in terms of what we'll see this flu season. We're, we're still reporting new cases. And uh, you and I talked the other day about uh, how the, uh, the positive testing seems to really be down low. Uh, but you, you point out that there are a number of reasons why the numbers may look lower than they actually are. Yes, as you know, we had talked several months ago about our positivity rate, right? That was a major concern. We had rates that were in the upper teens at times, which was which was rather frightening. Um, now they're in single digits and they're very low. Uh, as I look at the latest week of reporting, our countywide electronic lab reporting indicates that uh, the last two week, the last ten day period, or thirteen, I'm sorry, last two week period, we had. We only conducted, uh, not we as the Board of Health, but countywide, meaning the health systems, um, close to 38,000 tests, and the positivity rate was about 1.5%. So that can speak to a lot of things. Um, certainly, I think in this, what we would call maybe now an era of vaccination, 
you know, we're seeing less people resort to testing. People are just making a firm decision, uh, oftentimes when they're healthy, right? We're not talking about ill people, but we're talking about healthy people. They're either making the decision to get vaccinated or not. And if they are, then that, you know, just becomes another person that theoretically doesn't become tested. Uh, and I think, you know, we're, we're seeing less cases at hospitals and we're seeing hospitalizations go down. So that means that fewer people are coming in with COVID, which means fewer people are getting tested. So, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, we're turning the corner a bit in terms of the positivity rate being, you know, a major indicator of the presence of COVID. And we're looking more now at vaccination rates. You mentioned that recently we did about 38,000 tests in a week. At the height of our testing, how high was that number? Well, and, and I'm sorry if I conveyed that incorrectly. That's a two-week period, so that's about 38,000 oh, over two weeks. Two weeks. Um, I would say probably... Still has to compare, least, sure. Sure, sure. Uh, at least two to three times that much, uh, you know, because you just had so many people, you know, coming either through their physician or into the emergency rooms you know, complaining of, of symptoms that were COVID-like. So, um, you know, and then also, you know, we had the concern that obviously in the institutions, they didn't want people bringing in COVID to their patients. So, you know, anybody who was being admitted for any type of procedure in a hospital was certainly being tested for COVID. Now, do these numbers include uh, COVID tests that are being done privately? Uh, no, these are just the ones that are reported through the health systems. So this is this is confirmatory testing from nursing homes, um, hospitals. It can be private labs, uh, and also you know um, the ODH labs, meaning the Ohio Department of Health labs. They come from a variety of places, so they can include private labs. But I would not venture to say that it includes 100% of all the testing that's taking place. Well, now that we're into the summertime here, we have more sunshine, longer days, and that also plays into killing the virus, doesn't it? Certainly, right? I mean, the more people can be outside and the more, you know, people can be, uh, you know, less concerned with proximity and, and mask wearing, you know, and being out in the open air, that certainly is, is a good thing. Um, and also, too, at home, right? I mean, now, you know, when it's not too hot, we can have the windows open. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're living a little more freely, obviously, without the, the restrictions of the weather. Um, so, again, as I mentioned earlier, as we get into fall and then into winter and we begin to close up again uh, and we begin to become closer in proximity to each other, right, this will be another test that we'll have to, to see how we, uh, whether, we, whether we, uh, we fail or we improve, you know, going, in, going into that season in terms of hopefully not communicating or uh, flu or COVID amongst ourselves. So we'll see how that goes. Well, very good. We're, we're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Calgary County Board of Health. He's communications officer for the Board of Health, and he's been keeping us posted on what officially is going on for the last year and several months. We're going to come back and talk to Kevin about uh, how safe and how free we should feel with regard to the COVID issues here after these words. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nick Philosophy with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Kevin Brennan from the Calgary County Board of Health. And as always, he's 
giving us the latest information concerning COVID here in Cuyahoga County. Kevin, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Certainly, Nick. Thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, you've been with us uh, for many, many months now. And uh, finally, you know, today's sounding better. Uh, of course, with the 4th of July weekend, everyone's going out being very, very optimistic, uh, even for all of those who have been vaccinated. Well, what are we seeing with regard to what they call breakthrough infections with regard to vaccinated people who are still uh, getting infected with COVID? Is, is that something that's common or extremely rare? Well, I certainly would say it was rare. I'll, I'll certainly be glad to provide a little background on what a breakthrough case is. Um, the CDC defines it as someone who tests positive for the virus 14 or more days after receiving their final vaccination shot. So what that would mean is if you got the single dose Johnson & Johnson or whether you were getting your second dose of Moderna or Pfizer, 14 days afterwards, you would be exhibiting symptoms of COVID. Um, CDC also indicates that they are rather rare, given that about one out of every 10,000 vaccinated individuals uh, becomes a breakthrough case. So um, in Ohio, you know, we, we did a little looking around on various media outlets, and um, they were talking to um, medical directors or infectious disease doctors uh, who work for health centers or hospitals or large health systems. Um, they're saying that they're seeing them very rarely. Uh, in the University of Cincinnati, uh, they have they have a, a health department, and one of their spokespersons said that the hospitalizations are extremely rare, and and the numbers are very low in their region, and they're not seeing vaccinated individuals require hospitalization, except in rare instances where another health condition might make them more vulnerable. So obviously, what we're looking at, Nick, is people who are immunocompromised. And then also, I would say, uh, more so uh, in the elderly population, because obviously the immune system is not as strong uh, in a person of that age as it would be in someone who's, you know, far younger. So this is what's been indicated to us so far is that it's rare. Uh, it typically happens to people who have other conditions, and oftentimes those people are older. You know, the, the general sense, uh, because everything we've been hearing from the medical authorities and just in the media generally, is that if you completed your vaccination series, the two shots or the one shot, uh, you should feel free and you should be able to go out with uh, basically fear of contracting COVID-19 or the variant. Uh, how justified is that feeling of freedom? I know a lot of us feel that way, but are we justified in feeling more relaxed, more able to go out and enjoy ourselves in the way we did in 2019? I would say generally speaking, yes, but I think the qualifier here is if you're in an, you are in an environment where you're not certain that everyone's been vaccinated, uh, then, you know, you, you may want to exercise the caution of wearing a mask. And I think what we're seeing, uh, where we're seeing a lot of this is in employment situations, um, workspaces, offices, where, um, you know, People are obviously, you know, these are environments where people aren't being mandated to receive the vaccine. So it's voluntary. So if you have, for instance, 200 people in the building, right, uh, and you can't assure all those people that everyone's received the vaccine, the recommendation at that workplace may be, you know, if you can prove that you're vaccinated, then you don't have to wear a mask. 
But if you haven't been vaccinated, we recommend that you wear a mask. And then you have another group of people who are going to say, even if I've been vaccinated, you know, I don't know that those variants couldn't cause me, you know, maybe some sort of some issue. So I'm just going to play it safe and I'm going to wear a mask. So in an indoor environment, you know, this is something that we have we have seen more and more often. In an outdoor environment, I think, you know, people can feel, uh, you know, much more free to, uh, you know, to, to, to live what we would call more of a, a normal kind of life. And if we're talking, I think you mentioned 47% of our county population has been inoculated with one of the uh, vaccines. That still leaves us over 50% of people who are not vaccinated. And uh, I'm, I'm just thinking as we're, we're talking here is that the, the rules for virus transmission still apply. And one of the keys there is proximity. So uh, if you're not vaccinated, and I have to assume that a good percentage of the people listening are, are not vaccinated, they still need to take precautions to keep from uh, becoming infected with the virus. So proximity and mask wearing is important. But when do you and when don't you have to with regard to being outdoors or indoors and confined and close with strangers, all of those things? Well, what's the well, rule? Well, I, and you know, there are, again, you know, the, the governor's listed the health orders, right, and the CDC's relaxed conditions. So, you know, these are all what, what I think each institution would call recommendations or strong recommendations for, for what they would they would ask people to do. Um I think some of it depends on the on the age group too, um, because if we look at people, the latest information that we got for people that are over 65 years of age in the United States, and we're looking at um, you know close to 88 percent of that population that is able to get the vaccine has gotten the vaccine, um, which is great because you know you remember back in the beginning the nursing homes and, and the long term care facilities that's where we we had some very unfortunate outbreaks. And so that population, you know, yes, right. So whether that population is in that facility or, you know, just people that are, you know, living outside of that environment, the older population seems to have really, you know, got on board with getting the vaccine. Um, You know, so I think it, you know, it depends on where you're at and who you're with, because I know early on we would always say, right, you may not want to visit people who are immunocompromised or vulnerable because we all hadn't been vaccinated yet. And we were you know, recommending outdoor visits or, you know, not going inside and, and getting together with people, you know. So so your question, I think, is, again, we go back to the if you're outside and, and you're sort of able to, to freely move around and you're not jammed in a space with, with people, I think you can feel a lot better about not wearing a mask. If you're indoors and in the proximity, as you say, is the key, if you're in a place where you're able to socially distance and you feel comfortable with that, you know, then, then I think, you know, you can take that at your discretion. But if you're in confined spaces and you don't have assurance that everyone's been vaccinated in those confined spaces, then, again, that would certainly give someone pause. And to play it on the safe side, you may want to wear a mask even if you have been vaccinated. Well, we're not totally out of the woods yet, but we're certainly at the uh, edge of the tree line coming coming <laughs> up, uh, I guess you could say. The uh, hospitalization issue, you mentioned that hospitalizations or certain demographics are down and other demographics are up, and, and the young people uh, are making up a, a, a good portion of the hospitalizations. What, what's that about, and why is that happening? Well, I think what we're seeing is, you know, this this 
what we've been talking about, this freeing of society, so to speak, right, where we can all go out and not wear masks and it's, we're on the honor system. Um, and by and large, I shouldn't say by and large, in, in pockets across the country, we're seeing the younger population uh, really just not, not getting with the uptake uh, in terms of vaccination. Um, we're seeing it, you know, go in the right direction in terms of uh, children, right? Those that are minors that are under parental care, a lot of those kids, those school-age kids, are becoming more vaccinated as time goes on. But it's, you know, the younger adults that are, you know, mid-20s to mid-30s, um, just ballparking it off the top of my head, I don't have that specific number in front of me. But that seems to be the group where we're seeing outbreaks uh, and, and increased hospitalizations in uh, in various parts of the country. I mean, we've I, I've seen it over the last month uh, across several states. And so these are, I think, people that are just trying to get back in society that are conducting activity but not, you know, without the vaccine, the communicability of the virus is certainly there, as, as we've said. So, again, this is nothing that's any different than a cold or a flu or anything else in terms of communicability. So if you're close to people, you know, if you're sharing, you know, drinks, utensils, you're shaking hands, you're hugging each other, right, you're not cleaning surfaces, you're not washing hands, you're not socially distanced, you know, the, the probability of you getting COVID is just as likely as it was, you know, back in the beginning. And now the unfortunate thing is we've got variants because we can't get everybody vaccinated quickly enough to cut down the spread of those variants. So the people who aren't vaccinated, the risk, I, I certainly, again, not being a medical person, I would not say the risk is higher than it ever was at any time during the pandemic. But it is certainly, uh, you know, as threatening, maybe, you know, as, as it's ever been, because if you're not vaccinated, the communicability, you know, is, is certainly still there. Well, as we said, it's, it's, it's still there, and we have almost half the population at risk, half the population out of the woods uh, and uh, back to enjoying life. So we hope more people get vaccinated and that the uh, the, the amount of the incidence of the, the COVID continues to decrease. We'll have you on again next month, uh, Kevin, so thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Nick. Thank you. And again, I would echo your thoughts about getting vaccinated. It's a personal decision, but, you know, we certainly think it's the right thing to do. I, I think the evidence proves that. And as a lawyer, evidence is everything. So thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. We're going to yeah. take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about something near and dear to my heart, and that's aviation. And uh, with us, we're going to be talking to Paul Kojal, uh, who is going to be part of bringing the Ford Trimotor out here to the Cleveland area just in a week or so. And uh, Paul, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Uh, Paul, tell us a, a little about yourself. I mentioned aviation enthusiasts. You, you have to love aviation to be involved in any of this stuff. Uh, tell us a little of your background. Well, uh, I uh, I was 22 years at an airline, uh, but I got my start by going up to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, to uh, a convention back in 1994. It's uh, the largest gathering of aviators um, and aviation industry professionals. 
and it's grown ever since the 1950s. Um, it's uh, called the Experimental Aircraft Association. Have you ever been there, Nick? Oh, I have. It's, it's sort of the mecca for aviation enthusiasts. All right. So I didn't even know anything about aviation um, until my uh, wife, which was my then girlfriend, uh, was working there and took me up there. And that one event oh. changed my life forever. So uh, now, ever since then, you know, I've been working on my certificates and my ratings. Um, ended up with a great career at a great uh, commuter airline until it went out of business uh, from COVID in two- 2020. But it still provided me a lot of experience to uh, to continue to play with small airplanes and, and to figure out ways to um, sort of infect young people and, uh, and, and others um, uh, that have the bug in them to want to learn to fly. So we started an organization back in 2012 called Discover Aviation Center. It's out at Lorain County. It's a flying club. It provides aircraft uh, for people who want to learn, learn to fly. We do events. We do whatever we can. Uh, we took last year off, obviously, uh, but we're excited to get back into the event programs and get people out into the airport and get them, you know, to see, feel, and touch aviation. Well, when you mentioned going out to Oshkosh, I remember my first time at Oshkosh. Uh, for those of you who haven't uh, even heard of Oshkosh, it's a fly-in that goes on for about a week. And like Paul mentioned, uh, people from aviation, all different parts of aviation come out there. But when you get there, there's acres and acres and literally thousands of small airplanes parked all over the grass and uh, visitors and airplanes that are performing and are there for information. I, I tell you, if you are interested in aviation, try to fit Oshkosh into your schedule sometime. Uh, but, uh, Paul, we're talking today about uh, the Ford Trimotor. Uh, now, tell us about that and, and a little bit about this particular aircraft and how it's, uh, how it's, coming, to, uh, how it's coming to the Cleveland area specifically. Coming into um, Lorraine. Well, so over the years, um, we'd go to Oshkosh, and I'd see this big, beautiful, old airplane flying. And I'm like, you know, as a as a professional volunteer, how do I volunteer to fly that airplane? Um, so several years ago, I got selected to be one of the pilots um, of the Ford. And uh, I worked with a lot of great guys. I went through the whole training program. Uh, I'm not doing it now because of last year. Um, but I've, I've worked with the pilots and built their training program, and I said, this is great. So I started learning about the Ford by volunteering with the Ford at Oshkosh. Now, there's the, the EAA owns a 4ATE, which is a, a smaller version of this airplane that's going to be at Lorain County. It's the 5ATE, and uh, they have two airplanes that they take on tour with them uh, around the country. So it's sort of a living historical a museum and uh, pilots and volunteers uh, chase it around the country and we sell rides in it just to promote aviation. Um, So I got involved because I wanted to, I thought it would be the coolest volunteer job at Oshkosh. Uh, One of the things, I don't know if you know, Nick, Oshkosh would not be Oshkosh if it wasn't for people that gave their time uh, and volunteered their time. Oh, of course. uh, Vicky and I started volunteering with it. Um, So we've got the one that's owned by EAA. Uh, which is not going to be flying this year. It's under restoration. And then we have this one, which is the 5 ATE. We call it Big Ford, um, which is a 1928 Ford trimotor. Now, back in the early 20s, 
uh, the Stout Aircraft Company, Mr. Stout and Henry Ford, Mr. Ford, got together and said, hey, I think this, I think people are going to want to fly in airplanes and not just drive cars. So they started designing and building airplanes. And when you think about it, without a computer, um, with just a pencil and a paper and a, and a protractor, and, you know, and a slide rule, and they started building these airplanes. So they thought that people would go from coast to coast in an airplane, and that's, uh, that's how they promoted it, coast to coast in 24 hours. They'd fly during the day, they'd, uh, and they'd land, and then they'd put the passengers on a train at night, and then they'd pick them up at the next stop. And think about it, 24 hours to go from coast to coast, New York to L.A., where now it takes about five in, in a modern-day jet. So this particular airplane is uh, owned by uh, Liberty Aviation Museum. Um, it's got a great history. I'd be happy to tell you about it. And it's coming to Lorain County uh, July 8th through 11th um, to give rides. And rides are $77. And you could actually buy the right seat also. I'm not exactly sure. I think it's about, I don't even want to guess. I don't have the right seat price in front of me. But it's a little more expensive than the, uh, than the rest of the airplane. Okay, Paul, we're, we're talking about the, uh, the Ford Trimotor and the, the version that was uh, made in 1928. One of the things I noticed about the aircraft is that it's an all-metal aircraft, and it looks like it uh, uses corrugated aluminum for uh, the the parts of the wing and the part of the aircraft. Uh, how heavy is that, and is it something that uh, that withstood very well? What do you think? Well, it, it's kind of funny you mentioned it. The corrugated part, um, so when you take a flat piece of metal and corrugate it, it actually takes more metal to build the airplane and to make the airplane heavier. This airplane was originally certified at over 13,000 pounds. We run it uh, just over 12,000 pounds now. Um, but this particular airplane was restored, I think it was the 50s and 60s, and had flat metal put on it. And it was considered the flat metal Ford, they called it, for many years, uh, historically speaking. Um, but when they went and put it back together and restored it in the 1970s, 80s time frame, they put the corrugated metal back on it. And that metal is a specialty metal, and it's made in dyes in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And if you're ever interested, people from Cleveland can go out to the Liberty Aviation Museum in Port Clinton and see them actually building and putting together a Ford Trimotor. They're building one from scratch using the original plant. Well, Liberty Aviation Museum, uh, Port Clinton, that's at the Port Clinton Airport, is that right? That is correct. So if uh, someone wants a nice uh, one-tank trip here in Ohio, going out there to Port Clinton and uh, visiting, are they open all the time out there at uh, Port Clinton? Yep. Yep, they have a great restaurant, too, and they have a bunch of stuff on display. Um, we, my, my organization donated a uh, Link, an old Link trainer, 1930s, 40s, style uh, air, uh, trainer um, to the Aviation Museum. We've seen in the museum. They've got a B-25 there and a, and a TBM Avenger. My good friend Charlie owns a TBM Avenger, and he keeps it out there and on display. He actually flies it. It's a, it's a, uh, it is it is also a flying museum. I don't know if you're familiar with the TBM Avengers, but that's the one that George Bush Sr. made George popular. Bush, sure. Well, you know, one, one thing that fascinates me is the, the Link trainer, because you talk about uh, living history and living museum, 
the, the fact that when pilots back in the uh, early days of aviation learned how to fly in clouds, they had to fly in practice, flying in things like link trainers, flying in the blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a chance to get out there to the museum and take a look at it, uh, it's, it's going to be very, very interesting. You know, we're, we're talking to uh, Paul Kozel, and he's with the Ford Motor, actually the Ford Trimotor, uh, I don't know if to call it an exhibit or history event, coming out at Lorraine County Airport on the 8th through 11th of July, and you can come out and see a Ford Trimotor and actually go for a ride in it and uh, talking about... Uh, living history. Uh, Paul, are you going to be up there during that time? Yeah, yeah. I should also, uh, the 8th, uh, the rides on Thursday is going to be from 2 to 5, and there's a media ride too, if you're interested. And then uh, of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Lorraine County Airport, we'll be uh, hosting it. Rides are first come, first serve. Um, we try to get a plane full. The plane holds nine people. And uh, uh, so, t- and, and a right seater, so we we, we try to get 10 people on board. It's about a 15, 20-minute ride, and it's it's like stepping back in time. Well, excellent. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Paul uh, Kozel about the Ford Trimotor coming up here to the northern Ohio here in July. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with, with you for our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Paul Kozel concerning the Ford Trimotor coming out to Lorraine County in early July. And uh, it's your chance to come out and see living history. Uh, so, yeah, Paul, the, this aircraft, 1928, that's only like about 11 or 12 years after the Wright brothers first flew something, right? Crazy, huh? And then 20 years later, uh, they had uh, they were already developing jet engines. It's amazing. And then by 1969, we were landing people on the moon, which was amazing. Um, it is nice. Well, in any event, uh, for anyone who's considering coming out there to Lorraine to take a look at the aircraft and to, to go on a flight, I, I highly recommend it. Um, Paul, a couple of things I noticed. Uh, last time the plane was in the area that I, I was involved in was up at uh, Portage County Airport, went for the media ride. And uh, I look at the Ford Trimotor, and it, as we talked, made out of corrugated metal. It has three engines, three radial engines that look ancient. And um, there were, looked like wires and supports and all of this. But when that plane took off and was flying, I, I never experienced something so solid. Uh, that, that aircraft is not a rickety old aircraft. It's old, but it's not rickety. It's pretty solid, isn't it? Yeah. it it's a truck. It flies like a truck. Um, it, it, it's a truck now, and there's all the all the control surfaces, the the ailerons, the uh, the rudder, um, the elevator. They're all hardwired, so there's no hydraulic help like modern day aircraft have today. So it takes a lot of muscle to move that thing and, it uh, and keep and, it going. And funny, the um, steering wheel are from Ford Model T's. So oh, really? Automobiles during wheels. Yeah, so when you look at the cockpit, you'll see some of the older instruments. Um, and there's some pretty modern-day instruments, too, today, because we're when we when we go 
cool where we take it from airport to airport and we'd like uh, to use our GPS system. Um, but it, it looks like just an old truck. It's so neat. It's so beautiful. Well, and then the uh, engines, I think the starting up of a radial engine is still a fascinating bit of mechanics watching that happen. Um, t- tell me about the, the fact that this aircraft is flying from 1928 and those engines look like they're in pretty good shape. Where do you get spare parts for a Ford Trimotor? Yeah. Well, this airplane was originally uh, was, came equipped with Wright engines. Um, what we have on them now are Pratt & Whitney 985s. And the Pratt & Whitney 985 is a very popular radial engine. It runs about 450 horsepower, and, uh, and, and there's, there was plenty of them around. The Twin Beaches used to fly with them. And uh, we, I imagine EAA and their mechanics are always looking for parts and pieces. But, you know, they, they do have several engines as well that, we, uh, that, that are constantly being rebuilt. Um, it does have to follow certain maintenance requirements just like any ride program would. Uh, in today's world. So these guys are always working on it. It's it's a pretty amazing, it's amazing how you can take an old airplane, rebuild it, tour it, and then give, you know, it, you know and, and keep maintaining it, you know, to the highest level, to the highest standard. The, the airplane, even though it's from 1928, uh, what kind of certifications or upgrades or uh, checks do you need to do for satisfying the FAA, for example? Well, so there's three types of certifications. You have a standard certified airplane, which is a Cessna a Piper, and this is a standard certified airplane. It was certified by the FAA in standard category. So it's uh, we can use it for air tour operations. In fact, this one used to fly over the Grand Canyon for a while, too, um, in, in its mid it's 30s and 40s. It used to give Grand Canyon tours, this particular airplane. Uh, then there's limited category, which is like a Warbird or a B-17, um, which require different limitations and different um, FAA guidance. Uh, and then you have the experimental aircraft category, which is people that build airplanes in their garages, and that's what that's what happened. To, that's how ex- the Experimental Aircraft Association got made or, or got founded, um, just by people tinkering in their garage. Well, it's certainly interesting. Yeah. And, and as we're talking, I'm thinking about what I've seen of Ford Trimotors. Uh, when a Ford Trimotor will start flying back toward the airport, and if you're on the ground looking for it, it looks like a huge flying wing. That that wing is awfully thick, isn't it? It's it's huge. It is, it, and it, it creates a lot uh, a lot of lift, but it also creates a lot of drag. I mean. They didn't know what lift, thrust, drag, and weight really was when they were building airplanes in the 20s. And look at how the science and the modern-day airplanes have evolved. I mean, the the same principles still apply. The wing goes through the air, it provides lift, it goes up, and then it comes down. And this particular airplane needed three big radial engines to get it done. Get it moving fast enough to lift off the ground. Well, from what I remember, it, it lifts off the ground very smoothly when you're, you're taking off. You hardly notice it uh, lifting yeah. off. It just floats because of that wing, which is and fantastic. It flies at about 80 miles an hour. That's it. Which is interesting because 80 miles an hour may sound fast for uh, I-71, but if you're looking at an airplane, it looks like it's almost uh, standing still, hardly moving at all, exactly. very slow. 
Exactly. So what's what's the actual yep. touchdown speed when you're flying, uh, coming in for a landing? 80. So we take off at 80. We uh, we, we fly Cruise at 80. 80 land at 80. Land at 80. And that's, uh, you know, that's kind of standard for, like, older um, airplanes and tail draggers as well, you know. Well, it makes it easy for your test. You just need to know one airspeed. <laughs> <laughs> what's the airspeed for all, all the same? It's all 80. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, when when people come out there, do they have to sign up for flights uh, before they get there, or can they do that when they arrive, or how does that work? You can order your seats. Yeah, you can you can pre-order your seats online by going to eaa.org and search for the Ford, or you go to flytheford.org. I'll say that again. It's flytheford.org. Flytheford.org. Oh, excellent. Yep. And um, advanced advanced tickets are a little cheaper. Oh, excellent! So people, if they can check that out, the um, hopefully I just picture again. We're talking about from the eighth to the eleventh of July, out of Lorain County Airport. Uh, we're we're talking about beautiful weather each of those days, right? Uh, what what happens if so. the weather? What if it's a little rainy? Are you going to extend the stay out there, or people can fly no, on another day? It's kind of like a commercial airline, right? If if it's canceled by weather, it's canceled by weather. So. It's uh, got another obligation after it leaves us, so we'll uh, we'll hopefully get enough good weather for that week to get our rides in. You know, you you can't predict Mother Nature, but but we will all, we only fly her in good weather on safe days. That's for sure. If people want to follow in your footsteps and uh, volunteer to uh, help out with these uh, these old aircraft. Uh, what should they do, or how can they get in touch with someone, or maybe meet people there at the airport? Well, this uh, our EAA chapter twelve fifty two. So EAA has local chapters, has a local chapter in the area, and that's a great place mm-hmm. to network. Um, come on out to the airport. Ask for me at Discover Aviation Center. Um, I'd be happy to show you around. Uh, you know, you can always you know. The, the the hardest part I think for some people is getting past the fence. You know, sometimes you got to get past that fence, and once you see what's on the other side, it's it's very humbling. It's a, a wonderful place to be, and aviation is is just a really really amazing thing. And it's 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 for everybody. You don't have to be rich to be an aviator. You don't you know if I you know I did it. You know, it's just a humble farm kid from Wisconsin. So. Oh my goodness. Well, I, I know about it. Oh, well, I notice about aviation, wherever you go, uh, first off, everybody who is an aviation enthusiast is, in fact, an aviation enthusiast, and they like other aviation enthusiasts. So the result is, is that when you meet people, they're all extremely friendly and helpful. So um, if you're looking for something to get involved with and go and see what's happening, this this would be it. Well, very good. Well, Paul, we'll be seeing you out at Lorraine County coming up. What days are you going to be there? You be every day, Nick. I'll be there. I'll be there every day. Come on out. Check us out. Well, we'll be look. We'll be looking for you, and uh, see you, uh, the Ford Trimotor. That's gonna be a lot of fun. Now, is that gonna be right at the main FBO or the main office, or are they gonna be off some other part yeah. of the airport? It, uh, it'll be right in right in front of the uh, FBO, like you said, the main office. As you drive through the gate, it'll be on the right hand side. On the tenth, we're having a pancake breakfast and. Young Eagles Rally, which is we're going to be giving free rides to kids between the ages of 8 and 17. Um, volunteer pilots, 
take their planes and their their gas and their money and their time. And uh, if you're between the ages of 8 and 17, you can get a free ride in a small airplane. Outstanding. So, we'll move well, it over towards Discover. Well, it'll be over at the Discover Aviation Center on the 10th. But the rest of the rides will be in front of the, the main hangar. Very good. Well, Paul, we'll be looking for you out at Lorain County uh, between the 8th and 11th. So thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, Nick. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, uh, enjoyable, safe, and healthy weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea.